Hi guys, uh, wherever you're tuning in from, whether it be as well on, on Spotify or watching us on YouTube for the full experience, um, it's Too Many Cooks with me, Charles Burns. And today we have Nancy Con Congleton. Of course I stumble on it. I said to you before this, I better stumble on the name. <laughs> Every time. Nancy Congleton. Um, you are based, is it Oklahoma? Yes. Based in Oklahoma. Um, we've recently talked to, I mentioned just before this, to a GP here in the NHS in the UK. And I've also spoken to what you would call ER, we call A&E. Um, doctor as well so I'm sure there'll be some interesting parallels between what you're facing on the front line right now with coronavirus and what we are albeit I don't know the whole conversation because you have a real interesting career path and you're a best-selling author of, of an interesting topic that I'm kind of particularly passionate about as well in my own way <laughs> so thanks for joining very much I appreciate your time thank you for having me so it's a pleasure so um, I guess I'm looking at your kind of your career and stuff and you started something nothing to do with nursing, right? It was like property or something from what I can ascertain. Um, where yeah. did the nursing thing come from? Like did, did you, when you were younger, were you a caring person? Did you, I read you're like quite an introvert also, which is uh, unusual. I would maybe guess in the kind of work you do. Um, but yeah, where did that come from? Like were your parents like in medicine or, or was it just like a career you wanted to do or how did it come about? Well, it's kind of interesting. When I was younger, I was uh, fascinated by the medical profession, but it was more of a, those people do some really cool, uh, interesting, scary things. So it was more of like a respect for the nursing profession. And then fast forward many years later, my husband and I had been married about two years and we were doing everything right as far as both working full time, small, affordable home, uh, not fancy cars or anything, mm -hmm. but we just weren't getting where we needed to be financially. Sure. And so that's what prompted me to revisit the medical profession. And the nursing profession is one of those that it doesn't take you, you know, five, six, seven, eight years to get in. You can be a registered nurse in you know two to three years, depending on which program you go into. So it started as a financial need, but uh, I have always been a nurturing person and do like to do that. So it ended up being uh, fitting the needs of both financial and giving me a chance to take care of people. I, I actually love the fact that you're very honest in respects of the financial element of it as well, because maybe it's an English thing. It probably is. People hate to tell to tell you about how finance and economics, home economics, or, or whatever yeah. impact. But of course, they do in all decision making. Absolutely. So it's refreshing to hear somebody talk. Actually, here's what it is. Like in the war, <laughs> I'll tell you straight. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yes, it's about helping people, but I wanted to win some more money. Like, and what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I really I respect you for that. I respect you for that. So. Yeah. You started then, if I'm not mistaken, in 2003 for a year. Was that like, that was before you were registered as a nurse? Is that something you have to do a year prior to? Have I got this wrong? Or did you just do a year and see what it was like? No. So the way that worked was I had taken some college prerequisites in like 2001. And then in 2002, I entered the actual registered nurse program but the college I went to, after a year of the RN program, you could actually sit for your LPN license. And so that's a licensed practical nurse. Okay. So I got my LPN license in 2003, 
and then worked my last year as a licensed practical nurse while I was finishing up my registered nurse uh, education. So it's nice to go out and get my feet wet without all of the responsibility of the registered nurse. Okay, so it's, it's like a it's like a working year, is it? So out of college, then you do a year, and it's your like vocational year, is it, to kind of like cut your teeth in the actual role? Well, <clears throat> some people are, are LPNs, and they become an LPN, and they stay that for the rest of their lives. So it's actually two different nursing positions. What does LPN stand for, sorry? Um, so with the LPN, like some people get that and they practice as an LPN their entire careers. Right. Some people become RNs, registered nurses, and they never become an LPN. It was just a neat bonus to the university I went to that, hey, if you want to get your feet wet after one year of the education, you can. You can sit for this uh, state license and then practice as an LPN your last year of the college as you're continuing to take classes and work on your registered nurse. So it was just a nice way for me to start making some even more money than what I was in my current job and continue to build and get my registered nurse. Okay. So something you've talked about, which is actually very interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it is that within the medical profession, particularly nursing in your case, that actually all the various different elements and aspects of it so for example you were in pediatrics at one point then you moved into neonatal um, and various other things and obviously they're hugely different right there's some transferable right. skills it's almost like opening a business in my industry in like you know as, a, as in an app business and then opening a retail business like there's some transferables but it's a totally different game um and i hadn't really thought about that and i heard you mention it on a previous uh, recording you're on and, and yeah talk a bit about that as to how like that must be a shock to the system right like all these different changes yeah so here's kind of how it works in with nursing school in nursing school you learn the basics of nursing practice um, some uh, information on pediatric nursing emergency nursing medical surgical but then when you get out and you start practicing whatever specialty you pick you really drill down and focus in that area. And a lot of us, we revisit our nursing textbooks, even though we're out of college, because we're wanting to focus on whatever area we go into. So on one hand, it's awesome because you can change careers as a nurse many times from an ER nurse to home health to, you know, working in a, a primary doctor's office. But you do kind of have to start that learning curve over again if you're going from one specialty to another that, that makes a lot of sense out of the, the you've done various different things how many years is it now is it it's like 50 almost years? 17 like this june will be 17 17 years so in 17 years which particular aspect has fascinated you the most or has it you just get to a point in each facet where you're like okay i've kind of want to change now is, is it that kind of thing um <clears throat> probably urgent care. I really like the urgent care setting. And that was actually my very first uh, job when I was an LPN and I was finishing up my, my registered nurse. I worked for a pediatric urgent care and it was really awesome. And then I currently work for an urgent care. I've worked for an urgent care now for almost five years. And so I like that setting. Um, 
there are neat things about, I did five years in the ER and I got to see a lot and do a lot and uh, you feel like I was running around with my hair on fire, but uh, probably urgent care is my perfect fit. Do you, now it might not be something that you want to talk about, but I know some of my other friends who are in certain scenarios in the medical profession, yeah. there are some just crazy stories of things that happen. Can you share any of those stories or is it kind of like you're not, you don't like doing that kind of thing? No, I, I can share a couple of things. So one of the things from the ER that I will never forget is when somebody got bit by a snake and they brought the snake in in a bucket. <laughs> they wanted to show it to us. I don't know if they thought that we weren't going to believe them and they were looking for street cred or what, but they brought it in in a bucket. Yes. I to say. So, yeah, and then of course, everybody in the ER had to go to that patient's room and they killed it first, so it was dead. But we had to all go in and lean over and look at the bucket. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's been one of the funniest things I have came across, yes. <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> on, on a different topic, I might be getting this wrong. I'm just reading off your LinkedIn profile. Were you into geriatric psychology? I'm just, I think that's what the abbreviation is. I don't know. That's like, you says, it says Jerry psych. Is that geriatric yes. psychology? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's so, an interesting area. Yeah. So that was kind of an interesting, um, an interesting time. That was a time when I was working in the ER, but I was cross-trained in some other departments in the hospital. So I could pick up some extra shifts and uh, capitalize on that. And so I cross-trained in Jerry Psych and picked up some shifts there. And it was, it was kind of, it, some moments were really interesting. Some were, you know, kind of sad because some of the patients would think that they knew me um, as, you know, part of their family. Um, but, you know, because of the confusion, but I, I, I wasn't a part of the family. And so it's kind of interesting circumstances. And then also some moments where they just make you laugh, um, where they say certain things. I had a one patient that uh, was very fascinated with her sweater. And so she just kept saying, I need my sweater. I need my sweater. I need my sweater. And it just become like the theme for that day on the unit that we were talking about our sweaters. <laughs> so there, there are some interesting moments with that. I asked this to, uh, again, the, the, one of the UK GPs I was talking to. And often you talked about there briefly that you have some very challenging situations that are heartbreaking, that are really tough. Like right. how do you disconnect and how do you create a situation where you're not bringing that home and it's not becoming something that's causing you psychological damage maybe, or, or just being, you know, just carrying that. How do you kind of disconnect? Well, to be honest, it's a work in progress. Um, there are days when I do a good job of coming home and I put my bag in a corner of a room and I leave it there and I don't go back to it until my next shift. Um, and that helps to not kind of be messing with any nurse related, um, items that I take to work, but it is hard. There are some days that I come home and there's something that happened in the day that just kind of is eating at me and it's hard to, um, to just stop and say, I'm not going to think about that or that moment's past. So it's, it's a work in progress. I'm still a student in all of this, uh, as far as, uh, getting past those bad days sometimes. No, that makes sense. I mean, um, the most recent, um, company or health company that you work for and it, I can pronounce it a session. Is that how I pronounce it? Um, Ascension. Yes. Ascension. Ascension. 
Um, and I looked, looked into them because obviously in the UK, yes, we have private healthcare, but the National Health Service um, is public kind of service. So it's a little different. So I looked into this company and it's pretty interesting. They, they call themselves or, or they go as faith-based healthcare. What does that actually mean? Because it's, it's something I've never come across before. Well, it's a company that they, they believe in God. They have faith-based principles. It's, uh, it's pretty common for us if we have big meetings or big get-togethers where there's you know, a couple hundred of us that they read a verse from the Bible and they start off the, the meeting or the event with a prayer. Wow. And so they pray over the meeting or the event. And so that's what, that's what uh, constitutes most of that is just them pulling in scripture and prayer with their company and some of the things that they do. Does it make a difference to the actual practice of medicine? Are there certain instances where decisions are made, maybe financial or maybe on a patient level, that are different to maybe other places you've worked that aren't faith-based? I know that um, Ascension, that they have a charity care program, that they um, help, there are certain qualifications that patients uh, meet and they get charity care, so they get uh, major discounts. I know if we have a self-pay patient that comes in, they get uh, a big discount um, if, if they uh, pay in full at that time. So they get like, <clears throat> I can't remember if it's 50 or 55% off. So yeah, I mean, I think it's nice that we do have leaders at the top that are praying over the company, praying over these meetings versus companies that go into um, things and procedures that affect hundreds of thousands of people's that they don't ever consider uh, scripture or prayer or asking for guidance. Yeah, are, I think there's a difference. So in that respect, are most of your colleagues religious people or is that not really a requirement for working there, if that makes sense? It's not a requirement at all. Um, some of the people that I know in the company um, are Christians and faith-based. Some of them aren't. Yep. So it's, it's not a requirement either way. I read, I read about the company was saying that in fiscal year 2018, they gave $2 billion worth of uh, aid and medical aid to poverty stricken people in communities in need, which is just phenomenal, really. Um, yeah. So it's pretty, pretty amazing for a company to actually have a substantial social impact as well as just, you know, the basic kind of capitalism view, I suppose. Um, which I'm now, now interested in where in this story does this whole best-selling author come in? Because it's, it would seem <laughs> that one, as a medical professional, works incredibly long hours and is incredibly stressful. Um, where did you find time to write a book and why did you write a book? Yes. So what was interesting about that was, you know, I became a nurse, jumped into the nursing profession, and then all of these situations started coming up in my practice and it just kept popping in my head, didn't know about that, wasn't prepared for that, wasn't expecting that to happen. And over the years, it just started eating at me that just like I wasn't prepared for certain situations, there's this flood of new nurses coming after me and they're not prepared for it either. So it took a while. I actually started writing the book in 2015. Okay. And I just wrote it on my days off when I wasn't working at the hospital. And I just kept chipping away at this idea, this concept about 
uh, bridging the gap between nursing school and real life nursing practice. And then the book was published in 2018. So that's a couple years later, yeah. but um, I just, refused to give up. I, <clears throat> I had this desire and this uh, burden on my heart, so to speak, to help future nurses and make things better for them than it was for me. And so, called Autopsy of the NP. Does that mean, is that nurse practitioner? Is that what that stands for? Guess. So, no, actually, <laughs> in, in, it's so funny because this has come up before. NP does stand for nurse practitioner. But the name of my book um, is Autopsy of the NP, and then below it is my second title, Dissecting the Nursing Profession Piece by Piece. So it's like Autopsy of the Nursing Profession. Okay. I yes. See. Yes. <laughs> so yes. you were saying there were some instances of and situations which you felt ill-prepared to deal with, um, and that, that led you down the path of, I want to help future people in my position be better prepared to do this so what kinds of examples of situations did you come across and then if someone's going to look into your book what will they find is it practical advice how do you is it emotional advice like what, what kind of things does it solve yes so absolutely one of the things that i came across was in nursing school we talk about nurses taking care of patients how to take care of patients and that's true nurses take care of patients but that's not the only relationship dynamic that we have. So we have a relationship with patients, we have a relationship with doctors, we have a relationship with family members, we have a relationship with support staff like nurse aides, nurse techs, medical assistants, and then we have a relationship dynamic with mean nurses, and mean nurses are real. Um, I know some people are shocked when I say that, but there's a lot out there about mean nurses in the profession, and so there are five different relationship dynamics out there that people need to know about. And there's a different set of rules for all of them. So that was one of the things that was just very uh, different for me is I was like, I'm going to have a relationship with my patients. No, I have a relationship with all these different groups and I have to navigate that. Different stakeholders yeah. in, in the kind of chain almost. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, you know, interesting uh, to do that. And then there are legal issues. Like I came across legal issues that I really hadn't been prepared for. But the, the book is wrote in a funny way. Like I start every chapter with a story, um, either from my nursing practice or my life. And so I bring in real life examples that have happened to me. And so it's practical, but it's funny. Certainly. What well, you mentioned there, like legal issues, what, what sort of legal issues um, what, did you come across? So everybody has heard about, I think, HIPAA, about, you know, not talking about patients' information, their medical information outside of situations. But what a lot of people don't understand is there are subtle ways that you can violate HIPAA without even realizing at the time that that's what you're doing. Like we think of HIPAA as like the juicy stuff. Is HIPAA, that must be American term, is it some sort of act to prevent sense information getting kind of out there? Is that, is that what it is? Yes, yes, yes. It's like Health, health uh, Ability and Portability Act. I'm messing it up, but sure. yes. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's an American um, uh, act that protects patients. It basically says, 
you can use patient information for other providers or people involved in a patient's care, mm -hmm. and you can use it for billing purposes. You can't use it for anything else. But like here, here's an example that I have in my book. Let's just say a nurse is working in a hospital and she has a, a group of patients that she's taking care of. And then maybe a family member walks in to that room for that patient and they say, hey, I just passed my good friend Johnny in a wheelchair. What's he in for? Okay, I can't tell you what your good friend Johnny is in the hospital for. I acknowledge that you saw him and you know who he is and you saw him in a wheelchair. I still can't say uh -huh. anything about what he's there for. So there are just some of those subtle ways where especially new nurses have to be on guard um, that they can't say anything in those circumstances. And like, for instance, if I'm in a room talking to a patient doing an assessment and a family member walks in the room, I have to stop and say, okay, I'm in the middle of asking you some questions about your health. Are you okay mm -hmm. if I continue talking to you with this new person in the room? Right. Yes. That might, that and the assumption, the assumption is if they're coming in the room, the patient's fine with them, but nurses can't, we can't have that assumption. We have to ask. Absolutely. That makes, that makes complete sense. And just delving back into your past a little bit as well, you did a degree, I believe, in alcohol and drug abuse counseling um, and also liberal arts. So yes. twofold, on the liberal arts front, I know it's very abstract from what you're doing now. But are there anything right. that you took from there and you implement now? Because I know often with, you know, I love the Steve Jobs quote, and I mentioned it loads across, across all the different stuff I put out there, which is you can't connect the dots going forwards, only backwards, right? So I'm wondering whether any of the stuff you did previously in liberal arts, obviously the alcohol and drug thing is far more um, relatable to what you're doing. But I'm just curious if that degree in liberal arts had any... Um, or has any useful impacts. Maybe it helped you with writing the book. I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah, I probably say no. <laughs> no, just to be totally honest. And the thing with that was I had got my degree in um, alcohol and drug abuse counseling. Mm. And then a enrollment counselor said, if you get like these five more classes, you can also have a degree in liberal arts. Right. And depending, yeah, and depending on which degree path you might take in the future, you would need these classes anyway. So it was like, I'm already here. Got you. Five more classes, what and is, I might need it in the future. What is liberal arts? I don't even know what that really refers to. Oh, it, we looked at a, a bunch of pictures. Um, we had to name, you know, monuments around the world, uh, places around the world. We were tested over that and there was some writing with it, but it's just kind of like a, gen it's a very generic degree right. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I understand. And then, so I suppose the meatier bit is the alcohol and drug abuse counseling. Again, that's not, that's not something you go into lightly, right? What, what led you into that as like a, I want to study this at college. Cause again, I don't think that's the particular norm people to go and study that kind of thing. Right. I, I like canceling. I like um, having those moments with people and listening and helping. So when I first enrolled in the alcohol and drug abuse program for Oklahoma, my area, you could start practicing and basically get a job after a two year degree. But right, right before I graduated, the state changed the regulations on the degree program. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So basically after that, there were maybe just a few tiny little jobs I could have got, but nothing substantial since they changed the educational requirements. Right. That makes, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And then I would be remiss of me not to come on to the next topic, which is all about the coronavirus and what impact that's <laughs> having with you, because correct if I'm wrong, but you're literally on the front line with this um, as we speak, right? Today's your day off, but normally you're, you're dealing with that day in, day out, or is it something that you're, you're aware of clearly, but you're not dealing with it directly? Yes. Yeah, so I work 12 hour shifts. And so I am dealing with it directly. You know, some people right now are quarantined or they're staying at home, but that's not the case um, for, for my job. And at my job where I work at the urgent care, we screen literally every single person that walks in the door. Wow. Um, there are certain questions that we ask them. We have a piece of paper that we fill out. We scan and check their temperature. And while we're doing this, we're in an N95 mask. We have gloves on. Um, so for me, it's very real. Um, I'm not in an ER, you know, like that would definitely be more into the storm, but yes, it's definitely real for me with my job and where I work and, and how we're screening everybody for this. And one big problem we're having in the UK, there's two big problems really that, that seem to come out of the press. One is we haven't got in the UK enough tests to do with people like yourselves to make sure you're not, uh, you're protected. And secondly, from the PPE standpoint of your masks, gloves, gowns, etc., we don't have enough for that as well. Are you finding that's the case or are you finding that you're ample in terms of testing both for patients and yourself, but also on the PPE side? So we're not currently doing testing at the urgent care where I work. There are other places that are doing testing and some okay. of the bigger surrounding cities. So as far as the workers, we have not been tested. Um, and I haven't heard that, that that's going to happen in the immediate future. As far as the PPE, for right now, we have enough gloves and we do have some gowns, but the N95 mask, they have been limited. And so I have the same mask that I've been using for about two and a half weeks now. Wow. So, yes, so I keep it in it. We keep seal them in a, uh, a brown paper bag with our name on it. And then every time we go back to work, they're kept in a secured place and we are reusing the exact same mask. That's surely not best practice by any stretch. You're supposed to change them daily or after each patient. Like what's best practice for that? Well, if you're working in a hospital in like an ICU department and you have a patient in a room, you can have a mask. And that is just for that patient. So you would have a mask that is for that patient in room 301 that would be tucked away. And then if you have another patient in room 302, you would have a separate mask that's just for that patient. So yes, you know, in normal circumstances, um, if you're a nurse taking care of patients that require a mask, you have a mask for each patient. Whereas like with me and the others that I work with, we have one mask for right now that's gonna last us. We're not sure how long. <laughs> so, what, What's the general consensus both as a country and then more locally as a medical profession as to how serious this is? Because I know from what we hear from the UK, we only get filtered news, obviously, from, from, from different sources. Initially, Donald Trump was kind of, you know, dismissing it as being a foreign virus and that the US kind of were fine and they put the sanctions in place, etc. 
And now it seems to have taken a massive U-turn where all of a sudden it's now you guys could be the worst affected globally. Um, has, the, has the kind of the zeitgeist, has the feeling changed for you as medical staff in the last kind of few weeks? And also as a country, have the kind of general um, kind of mood changed? What I have seen just locally from my area are there are some people that are taking this super serious, like to the 10th level. Mm-hmm. And then there are others that feel like it's, it's a, a much to do about nothing right. and that it'll pass and that most of us are okay and that we shouldn't tank our economy for what's going on. Yeah. Um, I am kind of mixed. I think maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that it, it is serious, but I also, um, I don't worry about it as much as maybe others do. And I think part of that is just having been in the medical field for almost 17 years. Um, medical people, we kind of get used to certain things, used to critical situations. So there are times when it doesn't maybe hit us as hard as others from like an emotional perspective. Um, we're kind of, we, we learn as we go to roll, roll with it. So I think it's just mixed. In my area, it's mixed. Is it, is it the whole United States or is it different state by state in terms of the, um, the amount of implications and measures that are being put on? For example, are you able to go out, or is it only for grocery shopping and exercise as it is currently in the UK? Uh, and what they call key workers of which you'd obviously want and, and different industries are key. Is that the same where you are in Oklahoma or is it different state by state? Um, for Oklahoma, for Oklahoma, yes. Like we can't go to the movie theaters now. We can't go to gyms. Um, Barnes and Noble is closed. Barnes and Noble is a bookstore. One of my favorite places to hang out <laughs> on my days off and it is closed. Um, for a while, they had a sign on the door just saying, please respect social distancing while in our store. And now it's just closed. Yeah. Um, but so that's where my area is. I'm not sure um, about if every single state is drilled down to that amount um, or if it's just, you know, no restaurants and uh, things of that nature. If you had to give this is my tough question. If you had to give some parting advice to people considering going into the medical profession, um, things that maybe you would love to have known before you got involved with it, um, what would that look like? Um, I would say, I would probably say to go into a hospital if possible, go to HR, let them know your intentions that, Hey, I'm interested in becoming a nurse, but I want to know more and see if they will let you shadow. So basically what that means is you're not a medical professional. You don't get to make any decisions or anything. You're basically just coming in for a look see. So if you go in there and say, Hey, I'm thinking about being a nurse. I think I might be interested in working with children. Would you allow me to, come to the pediatric department and do any type of shadowing or take a tour, talk to some nurses. That's something I highly recommend is, you know, seeing it and asking some questions and walking around that, that department before you jump into it. Um, And also if you have any family members or friends that are nurses, um, 
go buy them a cup of coffee and pick their brain about it because nurses have all of these experiences that, you know, we're not, not all of us are writing books or putting them out there, but there are good things to pick up before you actually jump into it. I think that's a really great place to, uh, to leave it. And I'll, I'll mention as well, obviously, your book would be a great place for people to, um, I can plug it for you. Uh, to, Thank to read you. Um, I'll hold it up if that's okay. Oh, even better. There you go. Look at that. All, all, <laughs> and, uh, all well and dandy. I'll pop a link as well in the description to, to the link to buy on Amazon. I'll also link to your, your website. We can get in touch with you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for your time today. It's really interesting to get a perspective of the healthcare in the United States versus healthcare in the UK. And, um, you know, on behalf of the American systems, thanks for the work that you do, which is fantastic and amazing. Um, and whatever you paid, which is great, you probably not paid enough, I can assure you. Um, <laughs> it's certainly the case in the UK, and I'm sure that translates um, to yourselves as well. Um, so thank you very much, and thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. This has been a blast. Thank you. Thank you.